I tried to make an infographic for our, our newly launched uh, website, and um, I don't have a typical single one. They're all sort of little yeah. special flowers in their own way, and so I reached kind of a funny point of frustration. Um, <laughs> so the I'll tell you that it's tough to describe the typical process. That said, here's sort of the typical process. Welcome to Startup Gym, a show about the hard work, coaches, and community that go into building a company. Today's episode is with Ben Gilbert, co-founder of Pioneer Square Labs, a startup studio and venture capital fund in Seattle, Washington. Ben is also the host and creator of Acquired, a podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. We talk about storytelling, how to come up with ideas, being a founder, and of course, acquisitions. Let's get into it. It looks like you've done a lot of stuff and in a fairly reasonably short amount of time, you've, <laughs> um, you've been involved in a lot of different things. So I think that a fun kind of first question to dive into some of this stuff and to set the stage for which direction to take is what are you passionate about? Oh man, that's a really good, uh, that's a great opening question. I think, you know, at, at my core, um, and I've had, I've had jobs throughout my career that helped me learn this and I help have had jobs throughout my career that have helped me, uh, learn this the harder way. Um, I, I'm really passionate about building stuff mm -hmm. and, um, um, I'm extremely passionate about, uh, entrepreneurship in all forms. And so the sort of um, adrenaline rush that you get from working on a new idea or working on an idea that is getting traction and is working and is clicking or of having like an amazing jam session where you and, and somebody are are really on the same wavelength of a new concept and something you want to build and you just want to get after it. Like that is, that is like pure euphoria for me. So I think... Uh, um, yeah. Throughout lots of things in work and outside of work, it's really about um, starting and building. Totally. I completely relate to that. And it looks like from your background, you've not only built from the inside of companies, but also with this kind of studio model. Is there something different that you've found about building startups from that side of the table, from the side of not necessarily a VC it, strictly, not necessarily a founder strictly, but kind of this weird blend. And obviously I'm, I'm familiar with it because of science, but you've, you've <laughs> participated in a few different studios. What's unique about that? Yeah. You know, I think one of the things is, uh, is that you have a litany of good ideas by their very structure. So the way that we're structured at Pioneer Square Labs is, um, we have 14 different venture firms that, that, uh, uh, make up our investor base along with 55 angel investors, both in the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere. Wow. And so you have this sort of ecosystem of tremendous ideas that are just around the studio, not to mention our portfolio companies and, and other sort of entrepreneurial people that we're close with. And so at any given time, the opportunity cost of working on a bad idea is tremendously high because there's loads of potential good ones. And that creates an environment where um, 
if you were a single founder who was working on something with your heads down and as, as you often do need to, um, with a lot of emotion and a lot of buy-in and you're sort of pouring your life and your savings into this thing, um, that has its merits in a lot of ways. But one thing it does, uh, sort of, sort of blind you to is weighing that idea against other possible ideas at the earliest stage. And so, um, one thing that I've found that's helped me a lot in, in sort of this, killing ideas quickly thing because we our numbers show we end up killing about nine out of ten ideas is to be pretty dispassionate about them until you make a go no-go decision mm -hmm. that hey this thing actually deserves to be a company and being able to objectively and analytically look at something that um that you're, you're pretty excited about uh is is a tricky thing to learn and a tricky thing to uh to play a foil to yourself and develop systems within the studio so that uh, there's an appropriate uh, voice to, to balance every other voice of either skepticism or enthusiasm, that can kind of lead to uh, a really productive way to serially and continually um, start companies at scale. Right. I, I want to dive in a little bit to the language that you use there, and I noticed it on the website and elsewhere. You talk about killing bad ideas, which sounds a, a <laughs> little bit harsh, but I mean, it, it's it's accurate. I'm wondering what went into the de the decision of specifically using that messaging from from your standpoint as the startup studio, but also like what is beneficial about that framing to your investors and also to the founders of these companies? Like clearly you've yeah. chosen to use that that phrasing. Uh, I'm curious why. Yeah, absolutely. So we use it. Um, we do not kill ideas once they are sort of spun out and partnered with mm -hmm. a founder. Uh, so we, you know, we we partner with founders here at PSL and we we work with them from the the sort of earliest stages. There like is a, a phase where we are working on something sort of before the the ultimate founder comes in and partners with us to to um, to spin it out. Mm -hmm. And during that phase, that's when we're killing things. We're we're um, we we liberally use the word kill because we think we will never offend anyone with it because we're never mm -hmm. killing sort of other people's babies and and uh, at, you know other people's companies. We're very much killing. Hey, we came up with this idea, or one of our investors came up with this idea. Or you know, for whatever reason, um, um, we're working on it, and uh, we feel very free to use pretty aggressive language with our own sort of internal processes. And the um, um, the reason that we're so aggressive on that is is for focus, mm -hmm. because I think that it, having been involved in a bunch of these things in the past, your tendency is to always see the the light in something because you know we're we're entrepreneurs like we want to make things work and we'll push on things for a long time in order to try and make them work and um you know i, I think uh, uh that's sort of the 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 bit that blinds you and so we we say kill because we want to be really aggressive about um if it's if it's not showing really, really great signs like some of the other stuff we've worked on, we really shouldn't put, be putting all this energy into it and re really should go elsewhere. So we don't really, we have a few things that are like shelved or on ice, but we try not to do that stuff and just say, look, it's not occupying any of our time, our mental capacity, our meeting space. Like w we've just determined this idea is is not at the top of the stack. So we're going to kill it and mm -hmm. just be really discreet about that. Got it. Ruthless. Uh, but <laughs> Totally makes sense. So for the ones that do work, can you walk me through a timeline of the typical, well, I guess nothing's really typical, but for the ones that work, can you walk me through <laughs> the timeline of a company that goes through Pioneer Square Labs? Like I have an idea, 
I come to you guys with it, then what? Yeah, so it's funny. You, um, um, I tried to make an infographic for our, our newly launched uh, website, um, and um, I don't have a typical single one. They're all sort of little yeah. special flowers in their own way, and so I reached kind of a funny point of frustration. Um, <laughs> so the, I'll tell you that it's tough to describe the typical process. That said, here's sort of the typical process. Um, <laughs> The first sort of misconception about studios is that they're, or at least uh, the way that PSL works, is that they're like um, um, incubators or like accelerators where it's other people bringing ideas. Um, we generally don't do that. Our, our main process is uh, ideas that come from within the studio, within the studio investor base. Um, um, and we've had, I think, one one circumstance with uh, with Trace Me, which is Russell Wilson's company, where uh, Russell had this um, you know brilliant idea for hey celebrities should be able to directly connect with their fan bases, and he brought the idea to us, and we worked with him in sort of a, a bit of a unique model. But typically, that's um, that's not the way that it that it uh, mm -hmm. uh, we normally operate. And so um, the way it'll sort of work is either through one of our ideation sessions. So we have kind of a system and process about how to come up with and collect ideas. Um, which I'm happy to to chat about too, but either through our ideation process or through our our sort of um, um, problems we experience in our everyday life or industry trends that we notice, um, we'll we'll have an idea. And we basically want to work through the pitch deck on that idea at a very high level. So, What's, what problem are we solving? What's the solution? How big is the market? What's the competitive landscape look like? And each one of those sort of requires a different, a different skill set. So there's folks in-house here that can, uh, that can basically do the, the business case for these things and, and do the analysis and the modeling. Um, but we also are really all about hitting the streets and going to talk to customers. And a lot of the time, you can't just talk to customers and pull an insight out. You need to actually build the prototype and, and uh, have something to show. So either through dev or design at varying levels of fidelity, we do a bunch of prototyping. Um, and uh, um, a lot of the times there, there may actually be technology risk associated with, is it even possible to do this thing that we're theorizing we may do? So yes, we can find demand for it, but can we actually create the supply? And so we'll, uh, um, a couple of good examples, one of which is Ad Lightning, which is sort of a um, super deep tech uh, um, marketing technology company. Mm -hmm. uh, we needed to spend many months actually building the tech to figure out if it was possible to do what we were trying to do before launching it. So it, we're basically trying to de-risk every slide in the slide deck mm -hmm. uh, that, that you would go and, and use as sort of your template as the, the shape of how do you think about the business. And this tends to take about three to four months. So so um, different businesses require different sort of resources within the studio to, to work on them. But um, something like jet closing will require a lot of customer interviews, a lot of regulatory um, uh, reading, a lot of reading about the history of the title insurance agency, um, but not necessarily a lot of like, can we even technically accomplish this? And so there's sort of different, um, every company requires sort of a different set of skills to go and de-risk the, the major risks of the company. But um, usually what we try and do is, is uh, sort of within that three to four month range, um, be out chatting with investors. Um, some projects uh, may actually have a product that's launched in that amount of time. Other ones may take you know, closer to a, a year to launch it, but we uh, ha have um, conviction and validation around uh, around the concept much sooner than that, even without a, a product in market. Um, and and you know, for some types of products, that's impossible. For others, you can get a little bit more signal. So it really is trying to to compress that sort of idea 
putting together the the um, founder who will come in with the right sort of co-founders and early stage employees, um, and uh, and having them able to raise a seed round within uh, within let's conservatively say three to six months. Gotcha, gotcha. No, it's cool to hear that. It's it sounds fairly similar to to what we do here at Science. It's cool to hear. There's certainly not a ton of us uh, doing this model, um, and you guys I'm, are doing a great yeah. job at it. It seems. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. You know, as as you mentioned, would love to hear how you come up with the ideas in the first place. That that sounded super interesting. <laughs> yeah. So we have a um, um, we have ideation sessions, and they're an hour and a half long, and uh, um, some are uh, vertically focused, and some are not. And we'll invite in, in, in investors and sort of uh, friends of the family to come and and uh, um, if people want to participate, kind of um, help play devil's advocate to us a little bit because we can get kind of group thinky and in, uh, in always being exposed to each other all the time and think each other's ideas are good so we try and mix up the stew. Yeah. But we'll basically spend an hour and a half and um, um, let's say it's a vertically focused one. We'll try and invite in people that we think are domain experts in an area that um, we think is ripe for disruption. So at, at PSL we, we sort of have um, I'd say we're much broader than sciences in terms of our, our investment themes. Um, mm -hmm. but two that have sort of shaken out are, um, the, the, the one sort of everyone uh, is keying on right now, ML and AI and using next generation technologies right. and, and sort of new technology ways to create new experiences. The other one is going and busting up old industries that just haven't had any good technology applied to them at a long time that are just entrenched hard businesses to start. Boundless is doing it with immigration. Jet Closing is doing it with title and escrow uh, uh, for for buying real estate. Um, and uh, and Lumatax is doing it with small business sales tax. And so a lot of times we'll go in with a thesis of like there could really be a technology company in this area that hasn't had technology in a while. And um, so the process works like this. You have two minutes if you're the person sort of pitching the idea um, internally to, to give the problem and solution and why you're better and why we should pursue this. Uh, then we've actually built some homegrown software where everybody has a, a little mobile optimized website and we go around and we do a blind vote, one to ten. You are not allowed to pick a five. You must have an opinion and you cannot be a neutral party. <laughs> so after that, then uh, we, we take the blinders off, we look at the distribution up on a, a projector screen and see basically you know, where, um, what was our average and what did the distribution look like? And if it's higher than a five, then we go into 10 minutes of, of moderated discussion. And if it's lower than a five, that is the fastest kill ever. So that, uh, that we basically look at it like, Hey, um, um, that idea is not completely dead. Like if somebody wants to go and think about it a little bit more and, and, uh, um, maybe pitch it again in a future session, they're welcome, but we're not even going to spend the 10 minutes to talk about it now because there's probably other good ideas in this session. Um, and we sort of have a um, idea management system then that that we use to track all the, the different uh, um, stuff we come up with. And right. um, at the end of one of these sessions, there will be six to eight ideas, and we uh, uh, we kind of have a stacked rank list of, of things we want to go investigate. That's really and a cool. lot of the times we're already sort of full up from a capacity basis. So mm -hmm. um, those sort of just go into the, the top of the hopper. And then when we kill something, we go and take a look at uh, what did we think was a good idea out of the last session. That's awesome. Just out of curiosity to get super specific, like how are you managing those ideas? Like are you using Airtable, Google, what's helpful for you? We're using Airtable uh, once. So we used to use Google Sheets. Now we use Airtable. Um, that's once they become sort of a greenlit project where somebody is spending time outside of the ideation session. We just mm -hmm. have sort of a Rails built application that we use um, um, before that. Cool, cool. So 
on the other side of the process, you've spun out, I think I read nine companies and six of which are publicly announced. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Cool. Exactly. Could you, before we get into a little of that, could you just brag a couple about them? Uh, brag about a couple <laughs> of them? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, Boundless is a really fun one. So Boundless uh, is is enabling um the, the, the first time technology has really been applied to the problem of uh, spousal visas. So mm. there's lots and lots of people in the U.S. that there's a whole category of H-1B and that's sort of a, a, a different thing that has a, a corporate solution around it. But there's there's a whole bunch of people that are just looking to, to bring their, their spouse to the U.S. and get them a um, uh, effectively a green card, a marriage-based green card. Mm-hmm. And um, they can't because the immigration attorneys can cost north of uh, $5,000 wow. to do what is a relatively turnkey process with a lot of very complex paperwork. So it's almost impossible to actually navigate on your own. Um, and, and there's zero signal that comes back from the government if you screw it up. So you basically mail your thing into a void. You can wait a very long time. And it's sort of... a you hear different things from different people, but it can be like, oh, you'll hear back in three to 12 months. Also, you won't know if we even received it. Also, you won't know if you messed up your paperwork in any way. And this is like the most major life decision. And so, you know, every every other decision in your life can be hanging on, will we actually get to live in the United States or not? Um, and it's, it's about time that we used a lot of the things that we in the technology industry know how to do well and pointed at this problem. And so Boundless is really, um, um, they, they've launched. So if anybody is, is looking to go through this process, it's dramatically cheaper. It's, it's somewhere around a tenth the cost of hiring an immigration attorney. Um, there's a really user-friendly interface to sort of guide you through what actually needs to be filled out. Things get nicely mailed to you with, hey, just sign here and you're good. We typed it all up for you. Wow. Um, and, and, the, and they sort of help uh, um, measure how it's going. So Boundless is this just truly inspiring company that um, that I'm just proud to, to um, be associated with in a small way. And so Boundless, uh, uh, Jet Closing is a really great company that, that if you're, you're buying a house in, I think they're in four states now, um, uh, it's, it's basically a, a way to actually get visibility into the closing process instead of harassing your agent or having your, your agent then harass the title and, and escrow agency to find out what is actually going on with the process right now. And of course, they're cheaper too because um, you, they, a lot of these industries are just uh, operationally inefficient and don't, don't really require um, uh, as big of a margin as, as uh, technology companies need. So wow. there's, um, um, you know, I think those are those are couple cool ones. And I mentioned really fun to play with the trace me app. If you're, you're, um, into celebrities. Yeah. I downloaded it this morning. It's really cool. The product is amazing. Uh, That was the one thing that really struck me was whoever you have working on product there is unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That, that team is really special. That's really cool. So when you say spin out, when you spin out these companies, does that mean they've raised their round of fundraising? Like at what point do you know? So they're um, they're spun out when uh, there's a, a founding team in place. Got it. So for all the work that we do um, um, in the validation process and and in really helping to shape early product, it just doesn't matter if if um, like any 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 amount that we can move the needle pales into in comparison to the amount that the founders and early employees mm-hmm. and and people actually at the company for years and years to come. Um, work at it. So our whole model is really predicated on on partnering with amazing founders on uh, on well validated ideas. And so for us, uh, um, 
Um, it's a, it's a spin out when we both have conviction that this is a good idea and one that could get funded and, and it passes our bar for validation. And it's, it's got a world-class CEO at the helm. That's going to be the, the founder that that company needs to, um, to take it and blow it up for the long term. Um, and then we announce them publicly when they get, uh, when they get funded. How do you find those people? You know, it's really a personal network thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's something where you know uh, between our sort of founder managing director team, um, we just have a lot of sort of deep deep ties to the the Seattle tech ecosystem, um, and I think uh, um, a lot of folks that we we want to work with and and have worked with in the past, and we hope uh, <laughs> hope want to work with us and. Um, you know, I think it's one of those things where when you've been meeting with someone for a couple of years and saying, gosh, you know, you really should, um, you're someone who, who could be an amazing founder and, and, uh, uh, we'd like to, you know, when you think about leaving Microsoft or Amazon or Google and, and starting your company, we should do something together. And everybody sort of got that short list in their head of, you know, who, who would you write an angel investor check to if they just said, Hey, I'm starting a company and, and didn't even tell you the idea. Hmm. And that's the sort of caliber of folks that we keep on a, um, in sort of the back of our heads and say, mm. you know what, we're, we're just sort of, um, we hope the timing lines up or we're working on something that you're interested in and we can sort of partner on it together. Nice. That's a helpful, uh, heuristic. I like that. Yeah. I'm going to use yeah. that. So <laughs> speaking of network and your environment up there, your, your website says you guys rarely, your website says you rarely invest outside of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, why is that? You know, I think we have the best sort of, um, I think we have the best understanding of the ecosystem here. There are, are times, so we we just raised a venture fund, and that, right, sorry, that I said invest before we of, had talked about that. My bad. Yeah, so we basically, you know, uh, the PSL model works for a um, sort of one. one way for people to start companies lots and lots mm-hmm. in fact the vast majority of great companies get started outside of this model and uh and we kind of saw no reason that we shouldn't uh um kind of create an ecosystem between the traditional seed funding venture capital model and what we're doing on the studio side and so um we raised a venture fund really around the thesis that um Seattle is exploding and between the you know, tens of thousands of people that move here every year from the Valley and all these, uh, you know, powerhouse companies, Amazon and Microsoft and Boeing and Starbucks here. Um, and, uh, and all the second offices, there's a hundred second offices of Valley companies that are up here. Now there's just so much talent and much of it entrepreneurial. And so that fund is, is really, uh, aimed at, um, you know, supporting the entrepreneurs that are taking the sort of more traditional path to company creation. It's kind of funny to, to call doing a startup and raising venture capital a traditional path, but the <laughs> non-studio path to, to, to startup creation right. um, and bridging the gap between those two things. So what kinds of companies are people building up there in, in your environment? Can you walk me through the DNA of a Pacific Northwest company? It's super engineering focused. I would say the the companies that get started up here are some of the most engineering, uh, engineering heavy, technically complex, uh, the last five years really cloud focused um, companies you'll find. And it's funny that different different companies in different regions sort of get built from a different lens, you know, and, and you have a better insight than I do. But but in L.A., you know, there's there's just tremendous knowledge of of the entertainment industry mm-hmm. and of direct to consumer um, and really inventing the most sort of 
poppy, amazing, interactive things that that uh, people use in a, a day-to-day basis. Um, you look at the Midwest where I'm from, um, and, and in fact, I, I spent some time at Exact Target in, in Indianapolis, which has just really been this huge Midwest success story. Just amazing at at, at cloud enterprise software as a service, um, and uh, and uh, thinking through a marketing lens because exactly. Target started as an email marketing company, so lots of fantastic marketers and and design oriented folks over there. Um, uh, but here in Seattle, we are so so engineering focused, and that's not to say there's not other other you know great disciplines up here too. But um, the sort of density of talent that that has worked on a lot of these um, emerging cloud flat, cloud platforms and and uh, machine learning and AI and data scientists are, are just um, you know, it's it's completely dominant in the region. So I would say that um, that's sort of the nucleus of of most of the companies we start, um, and a lot of the ways that we do validation because we can kind of quickly build products and get them out into market and test them. But um, you know, one other one other way to answer that question is: Do we do more B two B or B two C? Um, and we do about fifty fifty. And so we're uh, we're pretty agnostic to um, whether we're we're going after one or the other. I would say on the studio side, the only things we don't do are things where we can't get any signal for a long time. So yeah. long lead time enterprise software sales or AAA game titles or uh, a lot of hardware is sort of off limits for the studio model. But uh, on things where we can get signal early, we'll we'll play in basically any space. So given that Seattle is engineer abundant. Uh, and it sounds like a lot of the entrepreneurs and talent that you have coming to you are, are technical. I know that your venture fund supports founders similar to how the lab does. What business resources do you provide them with? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, um, we, uh, uh, so certainly sort of the, the strategy angle. I think the one of the most mm. useful things is that when you look at our our uh, managing director team, you know, Greg was one of the the founders of Madrona, which is the, the biggest venture capital firm in the area, and has uh, about twenty years of of experience being a VC there. Jeff is the the biggest angel investor in the Northwest. He's in like two hundred and forty companies or something like that, and just has been incredibly supportive of a lot of founders over the years. Mike started a Quantive, which was a Super successful public public company and and sale to Microsoft, um, and and Julie's a sort of longtime successful venture capitalist as well. And so when you when you look at um, sort of that that cadre of of folks, we have a pretty uh, aggressive deep dive uh, schedule where um, every couple of weeks when you're working on a project as the the project lead internally or whether it's sort of close to spin out and and you're uh, um, the the founder of the business that's come in to to partner with us. Um, you, you basically get a sort of deck review every couple of weeks where um, we walk through everything from market positioning to go to market to, um, you know, what, how does the business develop a mode? What's its, its long-term scale advantages? And uh, um, so you sort of get the, the, the strategy angle there. Right. But then outside of that, there's a lot of stuff that's super overlooked that's incredibly it just, it's, it's, it's stuff you got to do to start a successful company. And I think a lot of people overlook how important it is. So like building your operating budget, 
people will put together a pitch deck and, and put together their use of proceeds and say, we're going to spend this on engineering and, and this on uh, marketing. And when you get down to it, it's really nice to have a complete operating model that's fully line by line, what we're forecasting for every month, when, what our headcount is, how that factors exactly into our burn. Um, and, and for example, I was, I was uh, most recently the interim CEO of, of Taunt for the last nine months. And being able to you know, forecast your, your spend within 1% um, uh, every month, it's, it's a really comfortable, rock solid way to run a business when you, you know exactly how everything's flowing. So that's sort of setting up a whole system around how do you have your QuickBooks and how does that flow through to your operating model? And, um, you know, how do you make sure that, that there's not going to be any random expenses you didn't think of, or, oh gosh, what about DNO insurance? So there's a lot of these sort of more tactical things to set up around your business, both on the operation side and the sort of finance side. And we've got HR folks to help with onboarding. So it's really like, um, you sort of get that, that super strategic, but then also really tactical operational, uh, um, level. Awesome. That sounds very helpful. So <laughs> given that Seattle is so technical and you have so many talented engineers, how do you hire the right ones? Mm. Well, there's a few ways to answer this. I think every, you know, every business has different needs and, uh, and, and requires different people. Um, one way is that I think everybody can sort of name the top few engineers that they worked with across their career and mm -hmm. that they're certainly the top few people at each company that they they worked with. Um, and so we're we're pretty referral based. like you can't you can't really scale that, but um, that's that's sort of a huge indicator for us. I would say we're reference before interview in most cases that that our references carry more weight. Um, but our interview process, uh, oh, oh, another thing is so PSL Tech uh, will often do um, um, interview loops for spin-out companies before they really have a team to do a full loop themselves, particularly on the technical mm -hmm. side. So imagine you're a non-technical founder. You know, PSL CTO will lead the interview loop with PSL engineers to sort of vet them. Wow, that's so, amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll do an all-day loop with two or three technical interviews, um, and the the founders of the business do sort of a culture fit, and we benchmark against um, people who we, we've interviewed at other companies. So there's a nice sort of network effect and way to benchmark against your peers to do that. What do you find to be the most appealing things that convince those engineers to join a startup? It's so much fun. Like, it's... I, I just think that... Um, Startups are really, really right for some people and really, really wrong for others. Mm. And it's just to, to get a lot of the right people, it's just not hard to convince them, um, especially if you can be building something in a space where you're, where you're super passionate. So, so for example, our first two engineering hires at Taunt, um, one was actually my college roommate. This is kind of a, a hilarious uh, uh, reuniting. Um, but you know, super passionate gamer. Like uh, Taunt is a, an esports company. Um, he's a super passionate uh, League of Legends, both fan and and player, um, and and has worked both in big companies and startups. And so for him, he was, I'm looking to work at a startup again because it's way more fun. It's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be thrashy. It's going to be taxing. Um, but I ha got that adrenaline boost from a company that I worked at once that I really cared about. And I went to work at a big company. And now I have the opportunity to work at a small startup again and it's in this area that I really care about that pushes me over the line mm -hmm. and so I think if you can find startup uh, inclined folks that are in a domain that 
that uh, they really love, it makes it sort of a no-brainer because I think, um, you know, big companies are nice for lots of things, but uh, I, if, you're, if, you, if you love a really sort of fast-paced uh, work environment where you're trusted with huge areas of responsibility, it's, it's, uh, you got to go elsewhere. Sure. So speaking of time, I want to talk a little bit about how you made that decision and how you were convinced to, to you know, become the interim CEO. Obviously not a small task given that you already had, uh, a pretty, <laughs> you know, you, you were already at, you know, you were already working. Um, right, why, right. like, why was it worth it for you? What went into that decision-making process to not only be at Pioneer Square Labs, but also, by the way, be a CEO of a company? Yeah, well, I should say, so that's not our normal model. Um, <laughs> and, and I would say while I was uh, uh, the interim CEO of that business, I was neglecting nearly all of my day-to-day responsibilities at PSL. And, and we, we sort of figured out how to deal with that. But um, for me, it was a situation where esports is a complete and total tidal wave. And it's a thing where um, it, these waves come sort of w- once a decade in something that you have any sort of domain knowledge or insight into. And when you can be in that right place at the right time and you can feel the wave cresting, um, th- those opportunities are rare and you have to, to go and seize them. And so I think that um, the, you know, e- esports is, is um, I think there was some crazy numbers in the the Wall Street Journal, but but let's just say hundreds of millions of people a year now, mm-hmm. um, and projected to be over 500 million people watching competitive video gaming by 2020. Um, there's there's a very real shift going on in society and in what uh, consumer entertainment looks like. And for the first time, video games are actually not just a form of entertainment to play, but to watch and in a huge way. Mm-hmm. And so what we were working on with Taunt and we're the, the competitive and social fabric around the game. So think about what, what fantasy sports does for football. Um, Taunt is doing in a very sort of native esports, uh, esports centric, esports only way for, um, for esports. Um, the, uh, it, it felt like a, a really nice sort of, um, opportunity to do something that that could be truly disruptive that no one else was doing that was sort of a huge economic opportunity and the the people that I had been talking about about sort of joining the company in its early stages were just really great and so I saw it as the opportunity to, to, to build an early stage team that I really liked um, be in a huge emerging market and, and have PSL have a have a company that's uh, um, that was putting mm-hmm. a chip putting chips down there and um, you know, personally, I, I, I have started companies before, but I'd never been the CEO of a venture backed startup before. And so, uh, I think that was a really great sort of opportunity for me to, yeah. to really learn a, about what that full process is like too. Awesome. You said that you kind of had trouble managing your other responsibilities simultaneously. If you could go back and do it again, would you manage your time differently? And how so? No, absolutely not. You, it requires uh, forty hours a day of mm-hmm. intense focus to be to be uh, a startup founder. And um, I would say the only thing I regret is spending too much time on on sort of distracting things at PSL mm. that I should have just trusted that other people would pick up. And uh, and and it actually worked out completely fine. I mean, the uh, stuff got done. There, there's always opportunity cost to everything, but I think there's no way you're going to succeed running a startup unless you have maniacal focus. Got it. And now you've moved on to, uh, you hold the seat on the board and now the company has a new CEO that is the long term. How did you find the new CEO and was that the plan going in? Yeah, it was. Well, first of all, JD's the man. So John David's awesome. the, 
the uh, CEO of Taunt. Um, and the, the, yeah, the plan was always that I was going to do this in an interim capacity and, um, foundry group, who's the, the backers of Taunt are a really special firm and, uh, basically saw the same opportunity that we did. There are backers, uh, for, for PSL in a, in a big way. Um, and basically said, look, like we're, we trust you guys to, um, sort of do what you do best and, and, uh, um, you know, launch an early stage product and, and find the right sort of long-term leader for it. Normally we, we of course find sort of a founder CEO to partner with from the very beginning, but we just weren't there with Taunt. Um, but we wanted to go do this and so did Foundry. And so, um, I think that, uh, I'm, I'm super glad we did it the way we did because I think, um, it, it let us sort of build out a team, really develop an understanding of what and why and how we were building it and be really intentional about who we thought about the long-term leader of that company was. And we had the the pleasure and fortune of working with JD for a few months as our, our head of product on a consulting basis before mm-hmm. we sort of made the mutual decision. And his background, he was the, the co-GM of PopCap, which sold to, to EA and a really big acquisition. And, um, um, was a vice president there at EA for a while. And so um, it, he was sort of looking to to get back into something entrepreneurial and and loved games and understood the the market super well. So he's just um, it's it's been awesome to get to to work with him. Cool. You know this whole this whole piece kind of makes me think about this general concept, which is your you know you talk about eSports and you talk about how passionate you are about it and the wave. How much do your own personal, interests and passions influence how, you know what you do and how you get involved because you see a lot of things day to day how does how do your own interests influence you know what you do at pioneer square labs yeah i would say this could even be to a fault and it, it so take this as that for for better or for worse um the way that we hire at psl is uh for startup people. And so it's, uh, you know, all of our engineers are folks that have either been the CTO of a startup or the co-founder of a startup or an early, early stage employee or went through tech stars or, um, you know, you, you generally don't, uh, um, everyone who's, who's sort of working on an early stage project here has a nose for, Hey, what's an interesting startup. And so that's a, that's, that's the thing that makes this, the, the model I'm about to lay out work. We use enthusiasm of the prod lead and the the technical lead on a project as a pretty significant barometer for should we keep spending time on it. Hmm. And so if we have an ideation session where people rate an idea really highly, but no one is actually inclined to work on it and excited about it coming out of the room, it kind of just doesn't get worked on. And and we look at that as okay, because if there's a, a room full of 23 entrepreneurially minded builders and and none of them are, are, are picking it up and running with it, it's not you know, it's, it, it, it doesn't, it, it, there, there's signal in that too. Mm-hmm. And so I think we look at, at, uh, personal passion, uh, as a big, big, uh, um, sort of guider of, of what we should work on. And I think that it, it works because, uh, like for example, I was a gamer before Taunt, like, but, but I would say not like a hardcore PC gamer. I would play mobile casual games. I played a ton of Halo in college and high school and did LAN parties and whatnot. But the, the, I got more passionate about esports as a space because of just all the momentum there and, and, and the direction that it was going. And I would say it built on my own personal passions that I would do in my sort of side time um, because of the business opportunity. Got it. So speaking of passion projects, you also run a podcast called Acquired. 
Uh, see what I did there? Transition. Uh, that was good. Yeah, yeah. That was really good. Um, I'll say longtime listener, first time interviewer. <laughs> Does content play into your strategy with PSL or is this is just a side hustle for you acquired? No, not intentionally. Yeah, it's, it's totally uh, um, acquired is a podcast about technology acquisitions, IPOs, and it's basically um, the way that we tell cool stories about about technology and business history um, through a podcast. And we started it because David Rosenthal, my co-host, and I were both at, uh, at Madrona. We would get drinks occasionally, but not often enough. And we would have a lot of fun geeking out about about um, trying to pattern match when different companies were successful and looking back at history and trying to pull lessons from that. And and uh, we ultimately decided like this is a super package upable thing that we do and it'll force us to get to hang out more which will be nice too and so it's 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 really around that i think it's it's helped um it's been it's dare i say symbiotic with psl where um um you know folks get to know me and the organization a little bit through the show but um no the show is the show is pure Mm -hmm. the show is all about uh the mission of the show was it a trial by fire like how did you get up to speed by in doing this <laughs> yes yes the the first episode is uh, the zeroth episode is unreleased and is terrible oh really and uh yeah we've we've definitely in addition to in, uh, intentionally recording an episode we were never going to release um we try and, and take, uh listener feedback super aggressively so we've got like 1300 or so people in a slack right. um that are sort of always always uh actually a lot. The funny thing is in the Slack, you'll see some chatter happening in the um, public channels. But what we can kind of see in the email digest is people DMing each other a lot. And mm-hmm. we get DMed with a lot of really good feedback and, and um, opinions on the show. And it's like super conflicty. So we have to sort of sort through that and say some people could listen to two hour episodes and other people think it should be 20 minutes to match their commute mm-hmm. length. And, um, you know, we, but it's definitely a trial by fire. It's been an evolution. Um, I, our show is a lot more buttoned up than it used to. So we, uh, you know, we we tell stories that are super research backed because David and I really enjoy making the time to go tell the story the right way and try and meet with the founders or perhaps have them on as guests to get uh, great primary sources. So um, that's a that's a labor of love. Anything that sticks out to you as things you've learned about storytelling through the process of of having a podcast? Yeah, um, I think that. In in everything in life, everything in life is is storytelling. Like sales is storytelling, recruiting is storytelling. Um, you know, pitching for for investors is storytelling. Uh, you know, sitting down to dinner with someone is storytelling, and understanding their background, same thing. And so I think that um, you know, we've really on the show not intentionally mapped it out. So there's sort of a. a introduction and climax and then denouement and sort of the typical storytelling arc but we definitely have developed a way to sort of feel where things should appropriately go and if we should have a reveal where should the reveal be and uh building momentum through stories and i and i I would say we're less intentional about it um more so that we've we've just sort of picked up better gut feels around where does something belong in a story, where does something feel like it's dragging, um, and where uh, um, what's the real punchy, hard-hitting thing that we want to build to. Got it. So I want to get into some, this is maybe a little bit indulgent, but I want to get into some fun questions about acquisitions, given, you know, given this theme. <laughs> Before that, though, one final thing about kind of the format 
your podcast, maybe for people who are listening and want to start a podcast, if you, if you could go back and start Acquired again, what would you do differently that others could learn from? Hmm. Uh, can I say some things I would do the same that were really helpful? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That, That'd be great as well. Okay. So podcasting, it's not expensive to start, but at some point you can spend infinite money on it. <laughs> and that's pure, that's equipment, that's services, that's, you can spend infinite time polishing. Um, I'm really glad that, that, that I, I think it can be too daunting to, to start. And I'm really glad that we kind of persevered through the sea of blog posts about how to do podcasting right and how to all this audio equipment you theoretically need. We recorded our first real episode that got released with iPhone headphones. And I, I think that's right. At some point, we bought some cheap microphones, and we bought more expensive microphones and a mixer, and um, started working with an editor and all that stuff. But it, it that is incremental. The sort of binary thing where you can get you can tell if the show is good or not. It, it can all be done really cheaply. And um, um, your listeners, like it's it's kind of cool lore at some point. If you have a super successful show and your early episodes were produced in kind of a garbagey way or were really rough, or I mean, you look back at successful TV shows like the first uh, first season of The Office or the first season of Friends, like yeah. a lot of the characters were not well defined, and that's completely okay. And so I think a lot of people have fear around like my thing isn't polished enough yet, and uh, the best way to polish it is sort of by by continually listening to feedback in the community and making it better. It's like a technology product. Mm -hmm. So your favorite, no, let, let me rephrase that. The most surprising or exciting or fun acquisition to research. Hmm. Let's see. You know, the one, I have a recency bias toward this one, but we just did the, the acquisition of Forethought Inc. by Microsoft, and mm -hmm. Forethought was the maker of PowerPoint. It was a, a $14 million sale that has led to, to probably a hundred billion dollars of revenue generated from PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> and the research for that one was especially fun because the, the guy who's the creator of PowerPoint, Bob Gaskins, wrote this really cool book and he's very open about uh, communicating with people. So I, we, we emailed Bob and said, hey, like, do you want to come on the show? And he very appropriately said, you know, I, I, I think the story for this is so long and complex and, and interesting and twisty and turny. I don't know if I can fit it in an hour. Um, I, I, I just ask that if in your research, you know, you read my book. And um, then we started going back and forth on email and he was sort of the kindest dude and he had so many interesting insights and he was, he, he you know, um, wrote these really great long emails and it's just so clear that like, um, you know, he was... He, he was of a sort of community mindset when the internet was a small place and when the technology community was a really small place and that sort of kindness and help and um, sort of geeky, I like what you're doing and I think what you're doing is cool and let me know if I can help. Like I miss that about the internet a little bit and um, not that I was ever, I was probably too young to really experience sort of the uh, one of the original message board cultures of the internet but it it it, it was cool to um to sort of get to experience that by by going back and forth with bob nice uh what is what would you say are some of your favorite acquisitions and i i define favorite very broadly that could be yeah. either to research or just because of the deal or, or for whatever reason 
Well, one of our sort of canonical A pluses, the best of all time, mm-hmm. is uh, uh, Apple buying Next. And while that one was quote unquote expensive, it was a few hundred million mm-hmm. dollars, um, and they they got Steve Jobs back. The by by getting Steve Jobs and by getting the the Next OS and the and the um, Next is it Next Step the the OS. The next platform and object-oriented computing and the beginning of what would become Objective-C. I think Objective-C was already developed there. But anyway, it is basically the core of macOS, which got forked to iOS, which is now forked to tvOS and watchOS and whatever the little version of iOS that runs in the touch bar. Like every single product that Apple has shipped sort of dates back to that acquisition, both in vision and in technology. And it's created like well over a trillion dollars of revenue for Apple. And and I seriously doubt that, that, that any of that would have happened without the next acquisition. So it's yeah. kind of crazy to think about the gravitas of the world and all the products that we all use and, and how you can really trace it to that, that, that one acquisition. Yep. Is there an acquisition? Sorry, go ahead. So Steve Jobs being like a seminal character in history, there's just so many good sources and so many stories and so much fun stuff. Hard to fit it all into an episode, but really fun to research. Awesome. Uh, Last question about acquisitions. Is there an acquisition that, you know, I'm not asking you to make a prediction, just is there an acquisition that you think maybe should happen in say the next five years or so? Mm. Um, I think Dropbox should buy Airtable. Interesting. I don't know if they can afford it. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Airtable's, uh, it is growing real fast. I mean, if if not micro, like, or if not Dropbox, then would Microsoft? Hmm. I mean, my, that feels like a game Microsoft would like to get into and and could lose ground um, if if they don't sort of have a Airtable like product that right. is is um, beloved and they could sell through the the Microsoft Enterprise uh, uh, sales channels or actually need Airtable itself. But I would suspect that uh, Airtable continues to grow and they end up with like um, the same approach they did with Slack. Interesting. Who do you think will buy Slack? Or do you think that will be a public company? Slack is tricky to me. I think that they've become kind of like this weird blend of enterprise and social because of all these Mm -hmm. tools that they're layering into it and all the bots and all the things that... You know, they they laud as being helpful. Um, so I wonder if if it has any synergies with like digital assistants. So for that reason, mm. I think Google is interesting. Um, I think Google is probably the the best, the most synergistic bet just because of everything they're doing with assistants. Mm. I like it. Yeah. Okay. So reaching the end here, personal goals over the next five years, unrelated to acquisitions. <laughs> I mean, there's some that are just like physical things, like I'd love to run a marathon. Sure. Um, I want to bike across the country at some point. Like that feels like I'm a big cyclist that I just have a tremendous respect for people that have done that. It seems like a really cool way to spend your time. Um, professional goals are always kind of a weird thing. Like mm-hmm. I'd, I'd, if, if you're looking for that in this bucket, because I think one, one way that I've... Uh, I was talking about this with a friend the other night. One strategy that I've had is basically maximize your surface area for cool things to happen and then hmm. pursue the things that feel right in the moment, which is always the tricky part about a five-year plan. But <laughs> it, you know, I, I hope to just keep opening myself up That's to awesome. um, work with amazing people on really cool stuff and, and see where that takes me. 
Agreed. Okay, so as a as a fellow podcaster, this is the last question, and I'll just toss it to you. How would you sign off this podcast episode? With just a weird cutoff. I think it should just end. Do you ever listen to the talk show by John Gruber? 